Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Okay, Erev Tov, everyone. Good evening. It's so nice to have you here. For those of you I don't know, I'm Adam Klickfeld, one of the rabbis here at Temple Beth Am. It's an honor to have uh, Beth Am members and new faces, Panim Chadashot, with us tonight. In the life of nations and countries, 75 years is nothing. If we start assessing where Israel is as if where it is right now is any indication of where it will be, just look at where the United States was after 75 years of its existence or the ancient and medieval and modern nations that lived for centuries. We're still in the nascent stages of Israel being a true state on the world stage. And in the realm of Jewish history, Israel is also still a very modern phenomenon, but 75 years is not a short amount of time of Jewish sovereignty. In fact, as Daniel Gordas has pointed out in a few articles recently, 75 years seems to be almost a tipping point for many of the times that the Jewish people have had sovereignty over the land of Israel. So we like round numbers, and this amount of time holding power in the land of Israel has seemed to be an inflection point for the Jewish people throughout centuries. We all agree, and tonight we represent the fact that there are many Judaisms. We might feel the most proud of and maybe simultaneously the most ashamed of our own expression of Judaism. Rabbi Yitz Greenberg said, you know which movement is yours. That's the one that you're most ashamed of. Not only are there many Judaisms, there are many Zionisms. And by that, I don't mean the overly facile but still true modern notion that there's left-wing Zionism and right-wing Zionism. I mean, when Zionism as an idea was born, it was not born as a coherent thing as if there was only one thing that the people who were the proponents of it were trying to solve and as if there was only one possible solution. To overly simplify an incredibly complicated set of phenomena, here are just a few of the early expressions of Zionism that were warring against each other decades before Israel came into being. There was the one that's perhaps the most well-known, and that was Herzl's Zionism, which people refer to as political Zionism, for whom the main raison d'etre was to solve the Jewish question amongst the nations supposed to put to bed for once and for all who we were in the world and to bring peace between the Jews and civilization. Didn't work out so easily. There were many people who were proponents of a socialist Zionism for whom the whole notion of founding this movement was to live out some of the Torah's, Torah's loftiest notions about society and justice and fairness. That was much more significant to them than resolving the question of the Jew in the world and anti-Semitism. There were many people for whom Zionism was intentionally, proudly, demonstrably a secular Zionism. Its purpose was to create, to launch, to seed Jewish secularism as an intentional idea, living out the European idea of enlightenment as Jews in a Jewish land, but secular. There was Rav Cook and many others who were proponents of a religious Zionism for whom Zionism existed to fulfill a religious obligation <clears throat> by God 
to settle and rule over the land that was given to us by God. And religious Zionism is kind of a kissing cousin to Messianic Zionism. And then, of course, there was the great Achad Ha'am, for whom Zionism was a cultural Zionism. He believed that the reason why the Jews were coming back to the land of Israel was not necessarily to have a political entity, or at least exclusively, but to experience a renaissance of Jewish culture and intellect and language in the land in which Judaism was born, and to turn Judaism from a European religion into an authentic culture. There is no Zionism. There are only Zionisms. And we sell ourselves and our intellect and our Jewish identity short when we fail to listen to the expressions of Zionism with which we don't believe, with which we struggle, with which we have not yet learned enough about. The great German-Jewish philosopher Franz Rosenzweig said in the 1920s, before the State of Israel was formed, Zionism, diagnostician of genius, but most mediocre healer, has recognized the disease but prescribed the wrong treatment. It's not even clear which of the Zionisms he was responding to, but he believed that the notion of Zionism had recognized many of the problems the Jews faced in the world, but he foresaw, in some ways with a lot of prescience, some of the ways in which the actual manifestation of Zionism were going to fall short. Those of us in the room and the leaders we're about to hear from probably don't even agree on what the basic problem is that Zionism is trying to solve. And even if we did, we certainly wouldn't agree on the solution. So, of course, we and they all have different visions of what Israel is at 75 and what it should be at 100. And it's about time we hear some of them. So I want to thank in advance our presenters tonight, David Suisa, Rabbi Dara Fremer of Temple Isaiah, Rabbi Noah Farkas of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, and Rabbi Elazar Muskin of Young Israel of Century City. And I yield the table and the floor and the program and the content and your inspiration to them. I'm honored to be on this panel, and I'm looking forward to your comments. We were asked to begin with giving you a perspective, our hopes, our prayers, and what Israel will look like in 100 years. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. God never gave me that ability, so I can't tell you the future. I'm not a politician. I'm not a journalist. I'm a simple Jew who Israel means a lot to. And I would like to formulate my perspective that way. A simple believing Jew and why Israel is so important to me. Perhaps then you'll understand where I come from and how I perceive the state of Israel and why I support it unconditionally. A number of years ago, I was asked to address a very astute group of very bright teens. And the question was, why do I believe in God? I responded by quoting the brilliant and creative 18th century Rabbi Yaakov Emden in his introduction to his masterful commentary on the Sidur, where he notes that the greatest miracle that the Jewish people ever experienced wasn't Exodus, wasn't the crossing of the sea, but rather the existence of the Jewish people today. He said that is the greatest miracle. In other words, Jewish history is the greatest miracle. It's the proof that there is a God, he writes. For logic would dictate that we don't belong here, 
logic would dictate that we should have been extinct a long time ago. So please appreciate that Yaakov Emden is writing this way before the Holocaust, 200 years before the Holocaust. And he still says, our existence is the greatest miracle. Our generation certainly should appreciate this more than any other. We, the generation after the Holocaust, the generation that has witnessed the greatest miracle that you could think of, the revival of the Jewish people in its homeland. To add to that, we've also witnessed an ancient language, the language of Tanakh, the language of the Bible, of our biblical forefathers, revived into a living language. No other language has experienced this. All of this inspires me every day. Every day I wake up to this very idea. A few weeks ago, I had the following conversation with a worker that's doing some work in our home. I could not identify the accent. He was a foreigner, but I didn't know where he was from. So I said, Vic, where were you born? And he said, I was born in Armenia. I came to the United States at the age of 16, and I quote him, and I haven't turned back since. And then he made a remark to me, knowing I'm a rabbi, knowing clearly we're Orthodox Jews. He said, we Armenians have very little influence in this world. We're nothing like you. You Jews have a lot of influence. I know Vic, he wasn't being nasty. He wasn't being anti-Semitic, one iota. Rather, he was being very honest in his perspective. Jews are influential. And when I heard this, I responded, Vic, you have to understand one thing. The only reason we Jews have an influence in the world today is because there's a little state of Israel in the Middle East. Without that state of Israel, we would have no influence No influence whatsoever. I'll prove it to you, I said. During the Holocaust, nobody cared. Nobody, including the government of America, while six million were murdered. I said, the state of Israel is the secret to our influence. This conversation made me think back when I was a boy. I was just turning 12 when the Six-Day War broke out. I still remember Nasser addressing the world and saying... Egypt and Syria and Jordan are going to push the Jews into the sea. I remember that vividly. I still remember my parents. My father was a rabbi in Cleveland. I still remember my parents watching the nightly news and keeping the radio on all day long to hear the updates from the Middle East. They thought we were going to have another Holocaust. They were terrified by the rhetoric because they were worried how in the world were this small little country called the State of Israel going to fight against and be stronger than better armies. The tension was real. I can still feel it to this very day. But don't for a moment think that the miracle of the State of Israel stopped at its borders. I will never forget how at a rally that took place right after the Six-Day War in my hometown, Cleveland, after the miraculous Six-Day War occurred, The then hand of the Telshi Yeshiva in Cleveland, the late Rabbi Mordechai Gifter, who was no religious Zionist by far. He was a leader in the Agudah. He was not a religious Zionist at all. I remember him saying, and I was a boy in it, I'll never forget. He said, if Israel would have lost the war, anti-Semites in America would have killed Jews in Times Square with impunity. He was right, 100%. 
On numerous occasions, I've heard Rabbi Marvin Heyer, a man who has access to Congress, the White House, and beyond, remark that the only reason he and others are, have entry, entry to the corridors of power in Washington and the world is because of the state of Israel. We are never to take for granted what God has given to us called the state of Israel. There's so much more to this perspective. Just 19 days ago, you might not have really realized it, it was Friday, June 9th. June 9th was the 20th of Sivan on the Hebrew calendar. I must admit, 37 years ago when I moved to this town to become rabbi at Young Israel of Century City, I didn't know anything about the 20th of Sivan. I admit to my ignorance. Being a rabbi at a Young Israel congregation, I noticed we would receive numerous copies of a calendar produced by the National Council of Young Israels. We were to distribute it to our members. The calendar was the size of a large legal piece of paper. It contained the times for Shabbos candlelighting when Shabbos was over. It highlighted every important day, may it be a festival or a fast. And there was, I noticed on the first time, the 20th of Sivan highlighted. I didn't know what was the 20th of Sivan. I never fasted on the 20th of Sivan. I didn't know anything about the 20th of Sivan. So I did my research. Intrigued, I found out that on May 26th, 1171, in a little French village called Bloy, which was situated next to Orléans, where the great Talmudic rabbi, the scholar Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi's grandson, lived, a blood libel was perpetrated against the small Jewish community of Bloy. And Bloy only had 40 Jews in all of its town. 32 or 33, depending upon which historian you wish to accept, were murdered and burnt at the stake. This was the first blood libel in continental Europe. And it was the first time the government cooperated in killing Jews. So shaken by this outright anti-Semitic attack, Rabbeinu Tan, no less than Rabbeinu Tan, a major medieval rabbi, he declared the 20th of Sivan a fast day. For centuries, for centuries, whenever tragedy struck in Jewish communities in Europe, they would turn to the 20th of Sivan and say that's the fast day. This lasted all the way to the Holocaust, all the way. It was so important to know the 20th, 20th of Sivan. But why is that so important when I think about Israel? Because with the state of Israel, we have a home. The 20th of Sivan and all of the other anti-Semitic attacks that took place in Europe for over 1,000 years occurred because we were guests in other people's homes, and we were unwanted guests on top of that. So, so to conclude, what does this all mean? Israel reminds us that that isn't our situation today. And for that and so much more, I thank God every morning because we have a home where Russian jury and Ethiopian jury were able to migrate when the time came. Without Israel, neither would have come and neither would have been saved and we wouldn't have had the benefit of all of the talent that they gave us. But you can tell me it is true, we have a home, but that hasn't eliminated anti-Semitism. Just the opposite. Look how many we've lost since 1948. In April, on Yom HaZikaron, the government of Israel said there were over 24,000 Jews who've given their lives in defense of our home. Allow me to share with you an amazing story I heard directly from Professor Robert Alman. Robert Alman was the 2005 Israel, Israeli Nobel Laureate in Economics. He was a guest in my home, and he told me the following story. During the Lebanon-Israeli War in 82, 
Professor Alman lost his son, Shlomo. He was killed while serving as a tank gunner. Immediately after the funeral, the military funeral for his son, Shlomo, Professor Alman, a strictly observant Jew and a devoted student of Torah, returned to home to begin the Shiva period for his son. As soon as he arrived, the venerable Rabbi Yisrael Zev Gustman, Rabbi Gustman was the last surviving great rabbinic figure from Vilna, from before the Holocaust. He survived. He was his personal teacher of Professor Alman, came to console Professor Alman. Professor Alman told me that Rabbi Gustman sat down and remarked the following. I lost my own son, Mayor, the rabbi said. He was murdered by the Nazis as I held him in my hands to protect them against being touched. Mayer was only four years old. They beat him so much that his blood gushed and it poured onto my body. He told Professor Alman, my son Mayer is now greeting your son in heaven, in Gan Eden. Shlomo is there greeting your son Mayer. But do you know the difference between my son and your son? The rabbi turned to the professor. They were both killed because they were Jewish youth. But there's a big difference between my son and your son. My son is simply a member, he said, of the heavenly minyan. Your son Shlomo is serving as chazan. The reason is because my son died simply because he was a Jewish boy. Your son died because he was defending the Jewish people and its homeland. When you lose your life defending the Jewish home and its people, you are a leader in God's eyes, he said. So if you ask me what's my dream for Israel in 100 years, when it turns to 100, I can unequivocally say that the state of Israel should finally be able to live with security, allowing it to no longer lose its children defending its borders. I dream and pray that all Jews, both in Israel and outside of Israel, will sincerely appreciate the gift called the state of Israel. I dream that there will be peace among the Jews who live in Israel and that the Jews who live outside of Israel will have peace as well. But no matter what happens, I will always be grateful to God for allowing me the privilege and the pleasure to live in this generation. I was born in this generation. I live in this generation. I consider that a gift, an enormous gift. And for more than that, I can't thank God enough. I honestly couldn't ask for anything more. Thank you for listening. I think it's really good for this event tonight that we started with Rabbi Muskin. (laughs) Because it establishes a baseline. Everybody here has an attachment to Israel. And what we heard now was really the long view. It was the Jews yearning for 1,900 years to come home. And Rabbi Muskin touched on the soul of our connection. But I'm in the news business. And I get inundated. So as much as I resonates with me the long term, it's in me. I also, I've never been so disheartened at what's happening in Israel, ever. And I'm like, people think I'm right wing. I'm not. I'm a big lover of Israel. And what's going on now is absolutely disheartening. Maybe before Rabin was assassinated, maybe the disengagement in Gaza was there all summer. That had some, you know, civic upheaval. But what's happening right now, I haven't seen it. I've spoken to friends of mine in Israel who 
are not alarmist and who are up in arms. And that's why I'm, I'm grateful that Rabbi Muskin reminded us what is it that we love and why we're so attached. And in the same way that I can be deeply in love with my son, and if something goes wrong with my son, if he messes up, he's still my son. And it's unconditional attachment to my son. And nothing will ever change that attachment to my son, no matter what he does. And Rabbi Muskin reminded us of that. And you know what? I needed to be reminded of that. I need it. Because sometimes I just can't take it anymore. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm hoping that uh, my friend Rabbi Noah Farkas will, will touch on that. But it's going to re- really represent the challenge of the evening tonight is the kind of tension between the long view and looking at 100 years and the short view that we have to deal with every day when we see what's going on. So Rabbi Farkas, all yours. That's a lot to follow up on. <laughs> Got this. But you're good. two really brilliant people. I now I, now the pressure is on. Hi, good evening, everyone. Nice to see everyone. Rabbi Clickfeld, thank you for hosting us, and uh, Rabbi Schatz, I see you over there too. So thank you for hosting us. I love Betham. What a wonderful synagogue and a wonderful group of colleagues to be with tonight. So thank you for um, for asking me to be here. Uh, I want to just begin with. Um, I want to begin and frame the entire conversation around a question. And the question simply is, what do we do with the Jews? That's a familiar question. It's a question sometimes I ask myself as head of the Federation, what do I do with the Jews? But it's a question that's been asked about us by every civilization in history. What do we do with the Jews? And the history of anti-Semitism has been an answer to that question. Terrible, um, disgusting answers to that question. What do we do with these leftover murderers of our Messiah? What do we do with the Jews? How do we keep them to bear witness against what the New Testament shows? What do we do with the Jews who uh, aren't allowed to, to work or to own land, but they seem to be able to help the economy, so we'll keep them here long enough, and then when things get good and things look bad for me, we can kick them out. What do we do with the Jews? What do we do with the Jews when we move into the Enlightenment period and we're supposed to move out of the magical, mythical thinking of the medieval life and we start thinking about what it means to be an enlightened human being and we start looking at rationalism and start building modernity and we start building nation-states and yet, what do we do with these people who are not German are not French, or not British, or not Spanish, but they're here. What do we do with the Jews? That question, is always the, which is known as the Jewish question, has always been the question when it comes to our people. And is this history of anti-Semitism outlines that question in stark reality. And it was Theodor Herzl who answered the question differently. So what do we do with the Jews is about what we do for ourselves. And that's where the state of Israel comes into conception as Zionism. 126 years ago was the first Zionist conference in Basel. And this is where Theodor Herzl put the question to the Jewish people ourselves. What do we do with ourselves? Not what do they do with us, but what do we do ourselves? And 125 years ago, 
The idea of an ethnic nation state was new. Uh, the first nation state was France in the end of the French Revolution, and that was only about a hundred years before. 90 years before the Basel Conference. So when you think about what is the question Theodor Herzl is bringing to the table is we should have what everyone else has. This new idea of a nation state. We don't know what it means yet, but we know we have. And so indeed the question about what what to do with the Jews is something that we as Jews have a right to answer ourselves. And the answer to that question is in the form of the state of Israel. Um, I grew up in Texas I grew up in a small town in Texas. Our family were regular victims of anti-Semitism. We were a religious family, uh, not young Israel. We were traditional conservative Jews, which means we had three sets of plates, milchik, fleshik, and Chinese food. Um, and uh, But my mom would light candles in the window every Friday night, and I have definitely clear and distinct memories of my father standing to make Kiddush and having our house egged at the same time. I have memories of what anti-Semitism feels like on our bodies, on our property, on our souls. So I know what anti-Semitism feels like, and it was in Israel where it was the first time that my insides matched my outsides, where I didn't feel alone, and where the question of what I wanted to do for my life was not going to be answered by the Southern Baptists around me or the right-wing preppers around me, or the football evangelists around me, but it was going to be answered by me, myself, my history, my present, and my dream for the future. And that's why I became a Zionist at 15, uh, internally, not just externally, and have lived my life as as a forefront Zionist every single day. And so when I think about what the state of Israel is today, it is an attempt to answer that Jewish question. What do we do with or as Jews? We have a right to that question. We have a right to answer that question. The answer to that question is unsettled. The state of Israel, a nation state like other nation states, comes with all the blessings of security, the blessings of prosperity, the blessings of privilege and normalization that, in which everywhere in the diaspora our, our privilege is entirely conditional, And in Israel, it is unconditional. But that privilege also comes with the responsibilities of taking out the garbage and providing water and electricity. And if you know how hard it is to run a shul based on a committee, imagine how hard it is to run a nation state based on committees, Jewish committees, right? So the question of what Israel will look like in 100 years is a terrible question to try to answer. I don't have the answer. But I know the series of questions that need to be answered. Those questions are being uh, debated now in Israel, on the streets of Tel Aviv, at the Knesset, in the West Bank, in the settlements, in the yeshivot, in the secular schools, on the on the lines in the factories, and on the lines of Syria and, um, and Jordan and Lebanon. The questions, these questions will have to be answered. None of them can really be answered in perpetuity because as we know from uh, what it means to be a burgeoning community, no questions are ever answered forever. They need to be answered for now. And the question is, in the intervening time between now and the future, how do we answer these questions? Will Israel become a halachic state? Not a state that's comfortable for halachic Jews to live in, but a halachic state. In which case... 50% of the Jewish community living there 
will feel disenfranchised in one way or another? That's a big question. Um, Every birth of every nation comes with some sins. There isn't a nation that didn't perform some original sin when it was born. Israel has started dealing with those original sins, but have not fully dealt with those original sins, and we have to. This country, America, fought a civil war over its original sin, and Israel's going to have to do the same. I don't mean to fight a war, but answer the question that that sin brings up. There are questions about how many people can fit in that land. Water is only so much. I and mean, if you go to Tel Aviv today, the average height of an apartment building is 30 stories. You just have to walk down the Tayelet and you will see new Tel Aviv taking over old Tel Aviv. The national bird of Israel is the construction crane, right? So the, there will be questions about can Israel as a nation state support the economy to allow for Jewish prosperity. When there is great economic inequality in Israel, there's great food insecurity, and I'm just talking about Israeli citizens, we're not talking about uh, Palestinians or Israeli Palestinians. There is uh, many, many, many Israelis that choose not to live inside the state of Israel for the reasons of political disturbance, wanting their kids to be safe, economic opportunity that Israel is not affording them. So those are big political questions. And I'll just end here. Rather than understanding the answers to those questions, the fact that Israel exists allows us as Jews to decide the answers to those questions and not to allow anyone else to decide it for us. Because when others decide to answer the Jewish questions, it leads to our demise. And that is the gift and miracle of the State of Israel. Thank you, Rabbi Farkas. As Rabbi Noah was speaking, I was thinking one of the challenges that we have on a day-to-day basis is what do we do with our thoughts? What do you do when you see a terrible article that drives you crazy? When you hear about a somebody really high up in the IDF that goes to pay his respects uh, at the Shiva house of an Israeli who got murdered in a terrorist attack, and then he gets attacked and assaulted and say, get out of here. What do, you see, what, how do, what do we do with our thoughts when we see baseless hatred happening now in Israel among the Jews? What do we do with our thoughts? Because this is the real challenge that we have, is we have to deal with our thoughts. And what we're seeing now in Israel is really not something that is a normal fight. It's totally on another level. I was there during the tent revolution. You remember the, the tents? And I, I remember I wrote this cover story in the Jewish Journal, and I called it Salon Nation. I would go to Rothschild every night, and this was supposed to be the big demonstration, Occupy, during while well, they had Occupy Wall Street in America, and you had professors of universities giving classes on the democratization of capital. This was the way Israel rebelled. It's not happening right now. Right now, there's demonization happening. And I see it all day long. I see it on Twitter, and I have friends on both sides. The judicial reforms that were announced in January had as its goal to have all the power, all the three branches of government, judicial, executive, 
and the Supreme Court under one party. It's not even a debate. It's not even an interesting, controversial issue. My friends on the right who are for the reforms, all I do is I tell them, okay, take the power that you are now trying to get, and in a few years, a center-left coalition comes in, and then they decide that from now on, everything is open on Shabbat. Every Haredi will now go to the army, and every illegal outpost will be dismantled. And you can't do anything about it because the Supreme Court will have been denuded. So, by the way, that is the best argument. If you ever want to debate with somebody on judicial reforms, that's the number one argument. And and every time I say it, it's kind of like checkmate. That's why it's not a debate, the fact that the original judicial reforms. Now, they try to change the subject, but it's created a tremendous rift in the society. And one of the rifts is that there's no legitimization of the other side. So the people who are going for the judicial reforms have absolutely no respect for the other side. Now look, what happened? Bibi Netanyahu is a secular, cautious, moderate leader. This is a man who hates to go to war. I had my son ready to go in as a combat engineer during Gaza, and I was praying to God that Bibi wouldn't let him in. He was going to be the first one into Gaza. People forget Bibi is secular and he's cautious. This is not Bibi. This is a whole new Bibi. This is a Bibi who's afraid of going to jail. And what happens when you're afraid of going to jail? You'll do anything to stay in power, including become partners with extremists. And extremists, by definition, don't compromise. This is who they are. And when I say this, these are also my friends. I've hung out with them. Mm -hmm. And I know. I know, and in a way, they're kind of honest. But for once, they have so much power, and they don't know what to do with it. Normally, power tempers the soul. You know, when you're in a position of power, you you understand the obligations that come with it. They're going in completely other direction, and Bibi is forced to go along with it. So what's happening now in Israel is unlike anything. And it's very dangerous. And as much as I want to think of Israel at 100. I can't think right now of Israel at 100. They want to get rid of the reasonableness thing in in the Supreme Court, right? That's terrible because the reasonableness has enabled them to really make some great decisions. So everything is bad right now that's happening in Israel. Of course, it's got the amazing things that I all see when I go. Amazing, right? There are 2,000 people for the Ark Route Convention in Jerusalem. Like entrepreneurs from all around the world. We don't see that on the news. The vibrancy of the culture, I could go on. We could all go on for two hours. On the, the miracle of Israel for me is not that it happened or that it survived. The miracle is that surrounded by enemy for 75 years, it was able to thrive. That's the miracle. And what I'm seeing now is that this miracle is being tainted. And I have no doubt that Rabbi Frimmer, my dear friend, my neighbor from Temple Isaiah, because eventually we're going to have to deal with the elephant in the room. By the way, the elephant is not in the room anymore. It's sitting down with us. And, and as much as I don't like to be the bearer of the big elephant and the bad news, we just have to deal with it. And maybe because I'm in the news business, I have no choice. But I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. It's not pleasant. And if we can come out of tonight 
being able to balance the unconditional love that we've seen from Rabbi um, Muskin and Farkas, that deep, deep connection with the soul, and yet still able to balance the this way of dealing with the agony that we're all feeling right now, then I think we'll have accomplished something. Rabbi Primer, all yours. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. I would also just like to say I also feel unconditional love <laughs> for Israel. Um, I have, a, I have a, a piece of Torah I wanted to start with, um, but I also do have like a laundry list of things that I'm hoping for by the time Israel turns 100, so bear with me. Because <laughs> the, the question we were asked to sort of reflect on is dreaming and hoping and praying for an Israel in 25 years and what that will look like. So I wanted to honor one of my teachers, Yehuda Kurtzer, from the Shalem Hartman Institute, um, and I want to give a special shout-out to Federation, who has made it possible for me to study with the Hartman Institute for the last many years. Um, Yehuda teaches that Zionism is an example of what it looks like for contemporary Jews to dream big. Big, collective, audacious dreams. Not just dreams on a day where we lovingly stare out the window unencumbered by life. Rather, dreams that come out of a place of brokenness and uncertainty. Dreams that need to pull us out of despair and reorient us towards a future that is distant, that is capable of being influenced and changed. Dreams that are expansive enough to include all people. An especially challenging task if you are living in an age of increased polarization. Zionism came, excuse me, Zionism came at a time of pogroms and possibilities. Jews across the world could find a place and a role in a collective dream. And rather than face down anti-Semitism with bunkers and barricades sticking heads in the sand or resorting to prayer in hopes that God will provide, the Zionist dreamers expanded and courageously imagined a world that would not limit them and a land that could protect them. And then, much to their surprise perhaps, that dream came true. The challenge that we have right now is we have accomplished a dream in our lifetime, and the argument can be any person who achieves a dream while they are still alive has not dreamed big enough. You are not done dreaming if it has all come to pass. And so what we are facing now, and what I am committed to dreaming with my brothers and sisters around the world, um, is an Israel not just for 75 years, but for 100 years, God willing, for many more years to come. And in the spirit of audacious Jewish dreaming... Here is what I hope we will see at 100. A two-state solution of an established state for Israel and for Palestine with security, diplomacy, infrastructure, and all of the pieces that are required for two states to live side by side. I would like to see a significantly improved life for Arab Palestinian Israelis, citizens of Israel, in terms of increased income, access to education and opportunity. I would like to see non-Orthodox streams of Judaism in Israel recognized and supported in marriage and burial and conversion, worship in public spaces, financial support from the government in equal measure. I'd love to see more shared cities in Israel, not just between Arabs and Jews, but between secular and traditional, because as far as I can tell right now, Tel Aviv is where you go if you are secular, and you can stay in Jerusalem if you are an optimist or if you are Haredi. 
I'd like to see a country in which Jewish time, Jewish values, Jewish language, and Jewish history shape and inspire the nation and its leaders, and I would like to see that exact same state be democratic in its values, protecting minority rights, pursuing equity and justice for all of her citizens. And because we've all spoken about Israel being deeply in partnership with diaspora Jews, I'd also like to take a stab at just two quick visions of 100 years, how Israel inspires diaspora Jews. And this is on me as a reform rabbi as well. Diaspora Jews from all streams of Judaism make aliyah, visit, and work, and contribute to Israel in higher numbers. This is a little bit of problem solving. Thanks to a more public conversation and effort to strengthen both the Jewish and democratic identities of our homeland. And I would also love to see a new Israel 101 tour for Americans that skips Masada, the Dead Sea, Sfat, and Caesarea, and instead focuses at least half our time on actually getting to know the people of Israel. And I say that in part out of jest. I also hate climbing Masada and doing the Dead Sea after the 8 billion times I've been there. But in all honesty, if you remember the Yudha Amichai poem about the tourist... You're not supposed to be looking at the arches the entire time. There's a man selling vegetables right next to the arch, and we are skipping his story. We are skipping the story of the people who are living and breathing day to day. All of the stories that the media is not covering, though I know they are trying to, about what it means to live and breathe and love in Israel, those are the stories we need to get into deeper relationship with. It's how I have progressed in my relationship. It is the rabbi that I am today because of close relationships and unwavering optimism and commitment to the belief that we will endure and survive, but we have to do it together. And um, and I think we can just skip Masada. <laughs> okay, all right. So, so far, I haven't managed to trigger any controversy whatsoever. <laughs> but I'm not going to stop trying, all right? So, all four of us have a certain leadership position, right? And I'd like to discuss the tension between your leadership hat and then your personal hat, right? So I, I'm in tension with it all the time. I have my own thoughts. Then I realize, you know, I got half of my readers on the left and half of on the right, and I got to somehow thread the needle. And it's really difficult to kind of separate your own thoughts with the responsibility of being an editor-in-chief speaking to the whole community. And I'm constantly working through that struggle. And I realize everybody uh, on the panel today has a similar situation. So I'd like to start with Rabbi Primer. Uh, you know, you'll speak on a Shabbat in your synagogue two days after something terrible has happened. And look, I mean, I'm trying not to... Um, sugarcoat any stuff tonight. I really am really going out of my way to eliminate all sugar stuff from my language because the stuff is really ugly. When I was hearing about all the different Zionisms, I really am thinking we're going through a pretty ugly Zionism right now. So if you have, if you know that all your congregation is thinking about this ugly stuff that's going on and you should know that there was a statement, was it 100 reform rabbis, remember, recently? Yeah, like 100 rabbis. And we've seen here in America, by the way, a real sense of outrage that's been you know, public uh, against some of the stuff I've been discussing. So what do you do 
when you're a rabbi, you know that everybody's thinking about it. At the same time, you love Israel, you want to promote the unconditional for Israel, the dreams that you spoke about tonight, and yet at the same time, you don't want to look like you're ignoring what's on their mind. How do you handle that? Sure. So, look, the first challenge is the assumption that most of my congregation is following the story about what is happening in Israel right now. And that actually is the far more heartbreaking sort of subtext of this. Um, We tend to find that we run Israel classes, we run sermons on Israel, we have celebrations for Israel, and you could argue we ran it at the wrong time of day, we didn't do the right marketing, uh, people were busy, raising kids is hectic. But the bottom line is that um, more often than not, we hear more quiet than we do outrage. And that actually is a deep concern. Because the outrage will come from the people who are usually the ones who are paying closest attention, and they are the minority. Um, And the question is, how do we reach the masses? So that's number one. Mm. Number two is, um, it's interesting to sort of like put up unconditional love against um, sort of an, uh, an honest conversation, as if to say, if you're really honest, somehow we diminish the love. But in my experience, the radical honesty, the ability to make conversations open, transparent, welcoming, and inclusive, to say um, that it is permissible to critique the government, that there are moments of deep um, injustice and a challenge to being democratic and Jewish, and how will we wrestle with that, that that actually creates the deeper love and the more enduring love for at least my community, that I can only speak with, and again, most people who join Reform Synagogues today, I would say, are primarily identifying as not Orthodox. (laughs) Whether they could also join a conservative synagogue or Reconstructionist or Renewal, the answer is probably yes, but they're not halachic. And so we're dealing with people who already are making many choices in their Jewish identity, and Israel is one of those choices. And so engaging with them around um, a modern, uh, approachable, um, intelligent conversation is actually, I think, level number one. And so the Devar Torah would be one that identifies almost in an educational manner. Here's what's happening because you might not be completely up to date on it. But also, here's what our tradition in terms of values, history, context, and peoplehood would suggest would be a response that we might think about taking, and this is the key part, together. Because first and foremost, we are people and nobody gets left out, and we're going to move forward more powerfully if we do it together. Right, but you know what's going on in Israel, even though, like, they don't. You're completely up to date. So what happens when you have these kind of thoughts that are weighing on you that, that is really, like, creating outrage within you? And then how do you, how do you, do you feel a sense of obligation to share that kind of honesty with, with your congregation? Are they able to receive that? I think so. I mean, again, you, I have some congregants here. I th- yeah, I, I would say they're, they're laughing. But I think, yes, I think that in... And how do you do that? Um, personal story is always a, the best way because it, it roots it in what is true for me and not claiming that it has to be true for anyone else. Um, I think uh, looking at who, where I stand on the shoulders of the people who came before me so that it is not my original idea or my own personal rage that is the necessary component, but sort of a larger history of how we talk about Israel and how we relate to Israel. Um, And I think in terms of Divrei Torah, again, no one has ever heard a sermon about Israel where I have been passionate and committed and honest about my fears, but also my hopes that has walked away and said, because of what you said about Palestinians, because of what you said about uh, LGBTQ rights, because of, right, I am, I'm done with Israel. 
So that's not, if if I was starting to get that feedback, I might have pause to say, maybe something in the dress shoat is not having its effect. But usually what it means is somebody comes up and says, um, nobody ever spoke about Israel that way when I was growing up, and it's one of the reasons I turned away. Right? And, And so, again... The gift of liberal Judaism is we have created an, uh, an open tent that says, um, with, when, as with as little judgment as possible, wherever you have come from, however you practice, whatever your opinion might be, whether it comes with an education and informed background or not, there is space for you to talk about it here, and you won't be kicked out of the community. Okay. Uh, Rabbi Noah, I know, I've known you for a long time, and I know your deep, deep connection with Israel. And I know how you, you're constantly, because I've been reading with Vartoris for years, you know exactly what I'm talking about, which is this tension between opposing ideas. What happens when you have a similar situation, when you, Noah Farkas, I'm outraged at what I'm seeing now in Israel, but I'm also the head of the Federation. How do you, how do you balance that? You know, how, how honest can you be? I don't run a shul anymore, so in some ways I'm kind of thankful. <laughs> um, but I will say a, a couple of things. Number one, I just don't think the community should muzzle rabbis. I think rabbis should make that decision about what they want to share and don't share. It is what they went to school for. It's why they have dedicated their lives to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people should have a very baseline respect for that. And um, if it's not the, if this person, this rabbi is not the right rabbi for you, then you can either stay in the community and grouse like everyone else, or you can leave. Um, and if that shul is not right for that rabbi, that rabbi can choose to go somewhere else. But um, I just do not think it is okay to um, only allow people to become prophets of the past and not um, and be morally indignant about things which don't matter and to um, only adjure us to be exactly the same person we were when we came into shul as when we leave. So uh, as a former pulpit rabbi, um, I feel very strongly about that. Um, In terms of my federation work, so one of the gifts that I have of being the head of the federation, and I I pinch myself every day with the amount of uh, how privileged I'm. If my grandfather could see me now, it would (coughs) be... Amazing um, is that we are have a bias for action, David. Mm-hmm. We actually don't make statements unless it's associated with a specific action, whether it's an action we have taken, an action we will take, an action we are asking others to take. We have a federations. One of our core values is a bias for action. So before I go down the road of making a statement about whatever the latest outrage is, whether it's um, on the left or on the right, whether it's on a campus here in the United States or it's uh, settlers attacking uh, Palestinians or Palestinians attacking uh, settlers, we ask the question with the value of having a bias for action, do we make a statement, do I make a statement, do we make a statement um, if there's no action attached to it? Now, you took action uh, a few weeks, maybe last month, right. where there was a group of uh, heads of federation and others, That's right. where you went right there to see the prime minister, you went right into the belly of the beast. What was the, res- the result of that action, and tell us about it. So the purpose of, so when the judicial reform um, protests began, it was about a month ago, maybe it was before Pesach, so I don't, God, 
the world's just January. melting away. January, January February, whatever it was. Um, we decided as federation executives of the largest federations in the country, and even prior to that, we had written private letters to the prime minister on behalf of the largest federations in the country, um, adjuring him to come to a compromise because of what this was going to do publicly to the Jewish people, both in terms of the diaspora and Israel itself. And we represented from uh, the New York Federation, Chicago, Miami, um, and Detroit, and, uh, and Los Angeles, representing the vast majority of the Jewish community of this country, asking the prime minister for a private meeting, asking the prime minister to, to maybe think about a different type of path for this perform. Um, that was rebuffed. So then we asked him publicly. How do you know? Did he say it was rebuffed when he said no, it was rebuffed? He, uh, what does that mean? You know, you send a letter and you get no response from the sitting president or prime minister of a country. I dated enough. But when you were personally. I dated enough as a, as a young man to know that when you call someone and they ghost you and what have you, like eventually that means uh, thank you, no thank Look, you. Well, you were in the same room with him when you brought eventually, it Eventually. I was getting oh, okay. there. So um, we decided that the only course of action for us to take to bring the, to the attention of the lawmakers, the think tank people, the, the government, and the opposition was to go to Israel ourselves and actually knock on their doors and step into their offices and have those conversations as a family face-to-face. So overnight, uh, the chair of our board, Orna Woolens, and myself flew to Israel, and we were there for less than 48 hours. And... Uh, we spent all day at the Knesset and at the president's house and, um, and with government officials, and the purpose of which our message was very clear. Again, a bias for action. We feel very strongly that this is going to have a deleterious effect, both on the, the sense of um, Zionism inside Israel, but also on the diaspora, and we ask you to come to a compromise. We didn't articulate what that compromise is. It's not our place to decide how many judicial people, how who appoints who, and and what is the and how many votes you need for this or that. Like, we didn't talk about that. What we talked about was is that for the Israelis who were protesting, we see you, we hear you, you are part of us, we are part of you. And for I, I met face to face with the authors of these of the reform in the Knesset, and we told them what it will do. And that if he comes to the United States, what he will see, and that the the dire consequences on the relationship between the diaspora and Israelis, what it will do, and that we ask them to come to a compromise. Unfortunately, um, the outcome of that, they started to understand that, but it didn't result in uh, an immediate action. And you saw just in New York and other places where the authors of those judicial reform came to the United States and what kind of reception they got from Jews and not just and from Israelis who are living in the Israeli diaspora. So um, unfortunately, many of the pieces that we have mentioned have um, have come come to fruition. Uh, but the point is this: getting to your point, David, and I think this is really important. Federations have a bias for action, and making a statement for the sake of making a statement to virtue signal on any any way. We don't do that. It takes a long time for us to decide to make a statement, sometimes too slow. But we have a bias for action because the purpose of speaking truth means that we have to act on that truth. And so that's why we decided to go to Israel in that moment. And if you want to understand my sense of pessimism tonight, which is rare for me, it's precisely because of this. 
So we've had action for 26 weeks. Upwards of 750,000 Israelis have hit the streets, anywhere from 200,000 every Saturday night. Many of these Israelis like to spend their Saturday nights in cafes and restaurants and theaters, and they've been every Saturday night. I have never seen so much action done, and yet this is what happens when you're dealing with people who are ideologues and who are absolutely have no interest. Have you noticed how in the Knesset, since the coalition came into power, you rarely hear about legislation to work on the economy or poverty or, you know, remember the price of cottage cheese, that used to be a big deal, and transportation and education, none of it. Since they came into power, the only thing we've talked about is power. That's it. The only thing in the Knesset, laws about laws. And why do they want to do that? Because once they grab all the power, then they create, they can create Israel in their own image. So you're basically looking at millions of Israelis and saying, the hell with you. I don't care about your Israel. The only Israel I care about is my Israel, and I'm going to ram it down your throat. Why? Because I got 61 seats in the Knesset. And you're dealing with extremists who've never had this kind of power. And I know them personally. And now that they have this power, they're desperately trying to recreate Israel in their image. And, and we shouldn't let them. Because one of the great things about a democracy is that you can't have just a, a one-seat majority run the whole country. It's not fair. And these millions of liberal, secular Jews who are having the same chutzpah as settlers... Normally in Israel, the passion is with the settlers, right? They're the ones that, on the right wing, the orthodox. They're the ones that are supposed to have the passion. All of a sudden, you're seeing these cool secular Israelis. But it, tens of thousands that are saying, it's our country too. And it's extraordinary what, what has happened there. But I am concerned because at some point, something's got to give. Something's got to give. And that's why I'm concerned. Now, Rabbi Muskin, I've known you for such a long time. I've been going to your shul forever. If I had to name the most Zionist synagogue in L.A., I think it would be Yik. <laughs> there is so much love for Israel in, in your synagogue. And I've heard you speak so often about your love for Israel. What happens if you have an issue with what's going on? What happens if you see something that you're not happy about? Uh, how do you deal with that? And how, how much can you divulge? So I'm going to tell you two stories. When we were pulling out of Gaza. Can you lean in a little bit? Okay. When we were pulling out of Gaza, a number of my members were bitterly opposed to that action by the prime minister at the time and the government. And they wanted me to stand up on the bima and denounce it. I said... If you're opposed to it, move to Israel. Become a citizen, send your children to the army, and vote. But you're never going to hear me stand up on the bima at Young Israel of Century City and criticize the government of Israel. I'm not going to do it. It's not who I am, nor what I believe is productive. In 1949, a man named Elie Wiesel survived the camps, and made his first trip to Israel. He was there for six months. 
He was very depressed at the end. You can read all about it in a magnificent biography now by Joe Berger, Joseph Berger. It was reviewed by Wall Street Journal. I strongly recommend you read it. It's an outstanding book. And he documents this part of the story. And he said, Eli Wiesel comes to Israel and he becomes very depressed because he goes to Tel Aviv and there he sees, sees on the beachfront the Altalina, all blown up. Jews fighting Jews. Something new? Nothing new. We'll talk about that in two seconds. Why I'm not as depressed as you are. Mm-hmm. Jews always fight concern, Jews. Concern. Always fight Jews. We've been doing it since the Bible. Mm-hmm. So I'm not so concerned, but we'll come back to that. And Eli Wiesel, and I actually figured you were going to ask this question. We don't know which questions you're going to ask. But I don't know if I, David knows what questions. That's true, too. Here, he says, in the book from Berger, he says, he comes and he's very, very depressed. And he was overwhelmed by Altalino off the Tel Aviv beach and Jerusalem stripped of its emblematic old city. Right? We had lost the old city in 48. And he blames the Haganah for not defending the few Jews that defended this, the old city. He's very depressed. But then he decides, and he's always, oh, by the way, depressed. As a survivor hearing Israelis call survivors sabonim, little pieces of soap. This is what was occurring in 1948, 1949. And he then decides, he said, I had tarnished my joy at the breathing the air of Jerusalem. But I decided, he said over and over again, that without the state of Israel, there is no Jewish people. And without the Jewish people, there is no Israel. And therefore, I will not publicly criticize the state of Israel. That was what Elie Wiesel lived by throughout his life. He would not criticize the state of Israel. Because without the state of Israel, there is no Jewish people. And without the Jewish people, there is no state of Israel. That has been my attitude on a public level. When Israel, when Jews do something wrong, it certainly bothers me. I take the approach of Rabbi Meidan. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read it in the paper. Rabbi Meidan is a Rosh Yeshivav in Gush Etzion. He denounced the settlers for attacking inappropriately Palestinians that, from the face of it, may very well be innocent. You can't march into towns like that. Mm-hmm. That is totally, totally unacceptable. It should be denounced. No question about it. But you're asking me, as a rabbi here in America, I will tell you, if I want to denounce the state of Israel, I'm going to move to the state of Israel, and I'm going to become a member, uh, a citizen in the state of Israel, and I'll pay taxes in the state of Israel, and I'll vote in the state of Israel. That's what I really believe. Now, you should know, 18 of my families in the past 15 months have made Aliyah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we our numbers, we're doing a good job, aren't we? But, hey, you know, our <laughs> numbers have dropped. Rough. Yeah, they've, they've moved to Israel. Mm. They're voting, and they're sending their kids, by the way, all ages. Not only retirees, but young families. And they're sending their kids to Israel. Well, Rabbi Muskin, I value your view. It's part of the diversity of the Jewish people. We shouldn't all do the same thing, and I value where, where you're coming from, Rabbi. I was handed some questions from this very sharp audience, and I really like this one. 
because this is one of those nobody likes to talk about this. No one. What happens when there's a majority Arab population that can vote in an Arab prime minister and the majority of Israel from the land to the sea that it controls is now an Arab population, 55, 60%. And the whole essence of Zionism was to create a Jewish state. So the question is, what happens in 25 years with Israelis and Palestinians? Right now it's about half and half. And everybody knows since the last 30 years, since Oslo, there's been zero progress. In many ways, there's been regress. So the idea of a binational state is getting more and more real every day. And if you ask my friends on the right who live in Judea and Samaria, you know, as far as they're concerned, they're waiting for a miracle. They will never leave. The idea of a two-state solution is so far gone from them. At the same time, I'm, I would love never to leave Judea and Samaria myself. But then what happens when Palestinians ask for the right to vote? And then they end up having more votes. So it's, I'm not telling you guys anything new, but it is the, the ultimate question, isn't it, Rabbi Firmer? Isn't it? I mean, like, that's, that's the challenge when you go with demography, which is, uh, and that's, I think, where Oslo first started. If you can give each people a state, you can preserve a Jewish democracy. Correct. And ideally then also achieve security and all of the things that would come from that. Um, I also have listened to lectures on a one-state solution, a binational state, um, and it it's like my least favorite no option <laughs> because yeah. I think it, it creates that, that anxiety within me that I do want a Jewish state and I don't mm-hmm. want Judaism to be on like this, America like I like being Jewish in America, I'm glad this is my home, um, but I love that Israel is the Jewish homeland I don't know how else to make it possible to be both Jewish and democratic without two states so that is why I continue to push for that language and that possibility, even as Rabbi Muskin said so beautifully, I am not a politician either. And and have to figure out ways also to say, and I think this is a very Hartman approach, which I appreciate, no one, as much as I would like to sort of cut certain people out of the government or create sort of a more streamlined system, no one is getting voted off the Israel island, as it were. And so we also, and I also, have to be able to imagine with audacious dreaming a, a two-state solution that still keeps all of our Jewish brothers and sisters also in the land. You got um, and those yeah. varying views, again, I'm not a politician, but I am, I'm trying to be a realist which is probably why it has not yet happened for 30 years, um, but I would love to believe in another 25. If we stay committed to that dream, we will get there. Well, you know, the only prime minister that could have done the heart-wrenching evacuation of Jews from Gaza had to be the leader of the settlers, Arik Sharon, far right. He was the only one that, that had the credibility to do it. And unfortunately, he died way too young. But I knew somebody who was very close with him. And his plan was to do in Judea and Samaria what he did in Gaza, which was basically do a unilateral disengagement with defensible borders, including a military presence uh, in the Jordan Valley, and a big, big fence completed, and allow the Jews who lived in Judea and Samaria to stay, give them that option, Right? 
I mean, it's, uh, and then basically tell the Palestinians you can do whatever you want with it, but we are no longer in charge of you now. So it's basically he gave them a get. Because right now they're married and they can't get a divorce. And it's a real problem. The biggest mistake that Peace Now did is they used the wrong word. I said that to the head of Peace Now, by the way. It's not Peace Now, it's divorce now. Peace is a pipe dream. It's divorce that Israelis are for, right? And, and Sharon was the only guy that totally understood that. But we're so far from that right now that that's why I appreciate the question, whoever gave it, because this is hard, painful reality. It's kind of that ticking time bomb. And the current coalition right now, I'm, I'm as in love with Judea and Samaria as any Jew on the planet. I have spent thousands of hours there. You know, so nobody can outlove me on Judea and Samaria. Uh, but it's a reality that we need to deal with at some point. Rep Noah, you want to weigh in, or everything's been said? <laughs> I think well, if we're going to talk about the peace initiatives or talk about Israeli Palestinian relationships, there's so much to be said about it. It is so, so complex, it really can't be handled in one night. But um, what it comes down to at the very very basic level is um, until both sides see it in their interest to come to peace and both sides are willing to give up on a portion of their dream, um, it won't come to fruition. So uh, the question we have had internally as Jews, as a Zionists, as people who care about Israel and care about humanity writ large, have had this conversation over and over and over again. What are we willing to give up on and what are we willing to affirm in order to achieve peace? It is not entirely clear to me that those who are on the other side of the negotiating table are having these conversations as readily. And so that puts us in a triple bind. Number one, it puts us in a bind against ourselves because we have differing opinions. Number two, it puts us in the sole driver's seat of a car we don't want to be driving. And number three, it, um, the longer we wait, the harder this conversation will get. Okay. A uh, couple more questions before we wrap it up. Rabbi Muskin, you intrigue me with all these families that moved to Israel. So I have to ask you, I'm sure you're keeping in touch with them. What's the general feeling? Any regrets? Uh, how happy are they? they Talk could, about that. They, they have feel more fulfilled today than ever in their lives. And it's, it's interesting it's because interesting. they went at a time 100%. of such turmoil. 100%. So let me just give you one little perspective of how I'm looking at this whole thing. I look at this whole debate in the streets that you're describing that's so tense. It is. I don't deny. We all read the papers. We all watching this. But I see democracy. I see democracy flourishing. I don't see anybody getting hurt, being killed, because they're demonstrating. The government hasn't stopped them from speaking their minds. Every Saturday night, I see democracy flourishing. And that, to me, is a bracha. And I thank I thank the Almighty for this. I thank the Jews in Israel for this. And that's what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. They're seeing a thriving democracy, and they're feeling very fulfilled as Jews. Like, they, they loved it here. They, they're very grateful. This, this Medina that we live in, called the United States, is a Medina Shel Chesed. It's a state 
that is a wonderful, kind, beautiful government that we should also thank God for every minute. We are blessed. We're blessed to live in this generation Mm -hmm. from every aspect. And we shouldn't forget about it. So they're living in fulfilled lives, and they see a democracy that's flourishing. And by the way, when the labor was in charge, the right had the same feeling that now the left has. Hey, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't listening to us. That's always, whoever's in charge, the opposition is always feeling that they're not being listened to, that they're not being taken into account. That's the history of democracy. And I, I agree. This is the, the silver lining is this incredible outburst from Israelis who don't usually do this on a Saturday night. And I've been in love with that. I think it's kind of thrown the right for a loop a little bit because they're not used to seeing this kind of passion. But what energy, uh, you know, on Kaplan every Saturday night. I wish I was there. And I totally agree with you, Rabbi Muskin, that uh, this is a, a silver lining. Of course, eventually something's going to have to give. You know, because there's the clock ticking on the judicial reforms and stuff like that. So we can only hope that there's some impact. Now, it had impact three months ago, right before Pesach, because after um, Bibi fired Galant, the defense minister, they had like literally an outpouring, the tens of thousands that night, and he had to stop it, took a break, and they went to start negotiating at President Herzog's house. And that kind of stopped, which is kind of disappointing. So there are a lot of things now that are uh, up in the air. I'm going to give each panelist uh, a chance to give closing remarks, if you, if you like. And maybe you can focus on um, how do we keep an upbeat attitude despite all the stuff that we hear in the news? Um, for sure. Well, <laughs> I have so many things to say. Uh, there... I think um, I think I'm going to go back to the Amichai tourism poem uh, because I wrote down earlier that um, per your comment about the person versus the rabbi role, I also um, am finally blessed to be a mother of twin girls and who are going to be eight in in the fall, and I'm also um, parenting Zionists, and so I would say that um, some of the optimism comes from just removing myself from the exclusively adult conversation and remembering the joys of introducing our younger friends um, to what it means to have a Jewish homeland and to watch the wonder and amazement of high schoolers and college students and, in fact, adults with a childlike in a sense, a beginner's mind meet Israel for the first time in a way that um, speaks to um, something truly extraordinary and miraculous. I think all of that is happening in the midst of the complexity and the nuance. And I guess the other optimism I would I would put forward is, um, and, and again, I think, and I'd be curious for the second panel that I'm sure Adam will organize us for, um, it, is in, in, in all of our communities, do we thrive when complexity is something that we feel like we actually can um, live in the midst of and, and not just survive but thrive in? That complexity can actually be really energizing rather than highly simplistic or just staying on the shot level. It's very Jewish to say we want to go deeper. So I guess... The experience at Isaiah and with my peers is 
the more that we get into the the hard questions and the challenges, ideally the more gratifying it feels to be in that deep relationship and see that what emerges out of it is um, the the relationships you need to stay in it and also a, a collaborative vision that feels more possible because many people are dreaming it together. Okay. Uh, Reb Noah, one of the things we've not discussed tonight is the state of the relationship between the Biden administration and the Bibi uh, administration. It's, it's, it's really at a low point, and it seems to be getting worse every day, especially with, you know, the threat from Iran and, you know, Bibi's now going to China. I mean, there's really, like, <laughs> it's as bad as I've seen it. Uh, since you deal with governments, you know, you're head of the federation, is there any optimism? Do you see a path where that relationship can be repaired? They've never had an Israeli prime minister be in power for so long and not be invited to the White House. So we're seeing new kind of things right now. You want to weigh in on that? You give me all the good questions. Yeah, give me the good ones. Um, I'm not sure about that relationship, and, and um, you know, on the other hand, uh, Bibi was overly sycophantic to President Trump. I mean, I think that there is a, there's a balance there, right? Like, they want the Israeli prime minister to stand up for Israel, too, right, in certain ways. Um, so I, I just want to, just as a closing idea, though, I keep thinking about I'm also a parent of four Zionists, my oldest is 14 and will be going on the Tefera program this coming year at Milken. So she'll actually be living in Israel for a little while. And uh, I was reflecting on what it means to be a parent and also uh, where we are in this moment and where we are in Israel's growth as a country. And um, we do so much for our children out of fear. We're terrified for, for them the minute they're born. We're terrified... And we wait, and we terrified, and we wait, and we terrified. And it's part of what it means to be a parent. But there comes a point in a relationship with a child where that, relate, that child becomes autonomous, and you'll never lose that fear, I understand that, where you cease to relate to them as your young child, that you walk across the street, and you cease to relate to them as the child that you pack lunches for, and you cease to relate to them as that child that you give money to go to the movies, and you start to relate to them as an adult. And there's a big decision point in that maturation where you're, only, you're not only going to decide what it's like to be parent and child, but can you be friends? And I think that we as a Jewish community, just extending this metaphor a bit now, we have taught so much of Zionism from a place of fear. We're afraid for Israel's existence, therefore you must love Israel. We're afraid for another Shoah, therefore you must love Israel. We're afraid that you'll marry someone who's not Jewish, therefore you have to love Israel. We're afraid for Israel's future, therefore you have to love Israel. We're afraid what those uh, people on campus do, therefore you have to love Israel. And we're not teaching Israel from a place of mature, realistic conversation where we're letting people decide for themselves and building resiliency in their Zionism. The reason why organizations like If Not Now exist is because we had a not resilient Zionist education system. And we have to build one, and we're working on it. Studies have shown that if you show young Jews, starting in kindergarten, and you don't afraid of talking about the conflict 
or the issue of the Palestinians or any of the other issues in the birth of the state of Israel, if you don't shy away from that, but also teach love of Israel through all of that, they become more resilient Zionists. That's what qualitative studies, longitudinal studies have shown. When you stop being afraid and you start teaching it not through fear, but through love and appreciation of who the learner is, not just what our feelings are, you begin to shift the idea of Zionism. And when I think about what the future of Zionism means, it's no longer about the existence of the state of Israel. It's about the character of the state of Israel. And that's the next wave of Zionism, and that's something we should all participate in. And Israelis need us and want us to participate in that conversation. When I was in Israel on Kaplan Street, they wanted their teenagers to meet my teenagers. They want, Israelis want to be embedded in the global Jewish community more because they're, they're past the initial takeoff phase of their statehood, and they're trying to figure out what it means to be a Jewish state, not just the fact that there is a Jewish state. And I'll end with a piece of liturgy, because I am a rabbi, and I'm the only one up here so far who hasn't quoted Torah, so I'm just going to quote the very I'm last so line of the very last thing that you say uh, when you leave shul on Shabbat, the very last line of Adon Olam, Biado of Kidrichi, Right? How's it end? Right? So in the moment where my life leaves my body, or when I head to the eternal rest, I shall have no fear, because I know God is with me. That's the last thing we say when we leave shul. The purpose of which is, when you walk out, the last thing that you should think be thinking about or the first thing you should be thinking about when you step over the gateway into the rest of the world is that you have been adjured not to fear. That at the end of your life, which could come at any moment, that you should not fear. And we should live our lives without fear. And that's a gift the state of Israel has given us to allow us to live without fear because we have a Jewish home. But we also have to teach that to our children. And we have to teach the idea that Zionism shouldn't be taught out of fear, it should be taught out of love. Rabbi Muskin, you are a great student of Rav Soloveitchik, one of the giants of the century, and I've been putting all of you on the spot you know, the whole night. So speaking of someone who didn't have fear, and I know how much you know and you've quoted him often, can you share something with us in terms of how we viewed Israel? As I was listening... Rabbi Farkas, I was saying, I can't believe it. I didn't quote the Rav once. Oh. <laughs> I didn't quote the Rav once. But then you said the Adon Olam. So let me share with you a brilliant insight. And then you'll understand why. I come from where I come from. And I said what I said. Because the most important moral act a human being could do is be grateful. Gratitude is the beginning, the middle, and end of being a moral human being. The Rav noted, you don't only say Adon Olam at the end of Davani. You say it at the beginning. Open your sitter. What, how do you start the morning with tefillah? It's Adon Olam. Then Yigdal, right? But it's Adon Olam. Then Birchot HaShachar. And how do you conclude it? Adon Olam. Why do you start and you conclude with the same prayer? So the Rav said, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, ah, you think you davened, right? 
You think, okay, I'm finished. I did my obligation. He says, uh uh-uh. That's why the rabbis put Adon Olam at the beginning and at the end. Mm -hmm. You think you davened? Start all over again. Start all over again. By the way, he said, how do you end Yom Kippur? With blowing the shofar. Huh? What are you blowing the shofar? Jubilee is not the real reason, he said. He said, yeah, that's custom. That was, yes, it was blown once in 50 years. The Torah tells us. By the way, every Jew had to blow his own shofar on the Jubilee. On Motzoi Yom Kippur on the 50th year, I couldn't have a Baltokea blow for me. The Rambam says, I have to blow. I have to blow. You have to blow. You can't listen to somebody else blow. You can't create freedom by somebody else creating it. You have to create freedom. That's what the shofar does. So he says, why do we blow the shofar today at the end of Yom Kippur? I said, you listen to the shofar all Rosh Hashanah. You thought, ah, it's all great, right? Start all over again. Hmm. If you wanted to know what our obligation is, start all over. We think we finished the obligation. The obligation is only beginning. So I finish with one little story. My grandfather was a rabbi in Chicago. He was born in Slabotka, right across the river from Slabotka. He was a musmach from Slabotka. He got smicha in Slabotka. In 1910, he came with his whole family to America. He was a rabbi in Chicago. I don't know of any relatives. We were blessed. Nobody died in the Holocaust that we know of. I didn't have cousins. I, didn't, I, I don't know of. I was one of the few when I grew up that didn't know of any relatives that were, thank God, perished. My grandfather was a strong Zionist. His dearest friend was Mayor Barilan, Mayor Berlin, Barilan University, the head of the Mizrahi, the religious Zionist. He came to him in 1920s, and he said to him, Rabbi, he says, you got to buy a piece of land. JNF was buying up land in those days. They were buying up land. You got to buy land. My grandfather, I have the copy of the document. What do you think a rabbi earned in the 1920s in Chicago in an Orthodox synagogue? <laughs> what do you think his salary was? My grandfather paid $150 for a piece of land. That's tens of thousands today. He paid most probably a good portion of his salary, of whatever he had, to buy up a piece of land in Yerushalayim, outside of Yerushalayim, in Neve Yaakov. It was a terrible murder a few, we- a few months ago in Neve Yaakov. That was, so my parents, in 1949, my parents made Aliyah for one year. They weren't able to make it. It was tough. You lived on rations in those days. Talking about a tough time living in Israel. You lived on rations. So my parent, my grandfather, turned to my father. May he rest in peace. And he said, Yaakov, here, take this document and go get your piece of land. So come, 1949. You know Neve Yaakov? You know who had Neve Yaakov? Hussein had Neve Yaakov. So they said, you want the land? Go to Jordan. 1967, my grandmother, my grandmother outlived my grandfather by many, many years. She lived to 105. My grandmother. My grandmother, the Rebbitson, she was a powerhouse. She goes and takes her document and she says, hey, 67, it's back, Hussein, we got it back. 
So she comes, and she comes to the government with her document. I want my piece of land. I said, oh, you want a piece of land? Go to Tzava, go to the IDF, because they've created a machana tzvai. It's now part of the army. You're not getting it back so much. We never got the piece of land back. But what we got is a love for the state of Israel that just doesn't stop. That, it wasn't out of fear. It was out of love. That was what we were raised. That was my brothers and my sister and three of my, two of my siblings and their whole families live in Israel. I'm the guy who's living here, you know. But they, it was out of love, never out of fear. My parents didn't say we have to move to Israel because of fear. They taught because that's a gift from the Almighty. So that's where we begin. That's where we end because it just doesn't stop. Okay, so just to, to wrap it up, Rabbi Frimer, you spoke about dreams. Rabbi Noah, you spoke about no fear. Rabbi Muskin, you brought up the idea of gratitude. And I've tried to bring up the idea of balancing the soul and the mind, balancing the timeless with the timely, and being able to deal with our deep, unconditional love with the painful things that we see every day. And I will just close on this note. If there's one... uh, human being I know in L.A. that knows how to do that is the rabbi of the synagogue. And I'm very grateful for Rabbi Klickfeld. I've been reading him for years. He sends me his sermons. And, and I really, I can tell you, he really knows how to, how to play that balance. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the community. And I'm grateful for the opportunity tonight. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.